90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Oh, just trying to survive the first week of school. <laughs> oh, yeah, same here. It is absolutely crazy. There are people everywhere. I forgot oh. how to deal with it over the summer. <laughs> it's so funny being in a college town in the summertime, and it's the best time ever. And then everyone comes back, and suddenly you can't eat. You can't get across town in less than, you know, 45 minutes. And yeah, I feel you. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, driving downtown is like playing undergraduate bowling. Oh <laughs> uh, well, we have on top of that, we have a whole bunch of construction happening, and so it's compounded a thousand times. I mean, I live ten miles away, but I'm about to just ride my bike. It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it can be pretty bad, Ugh. and it is it is construction season, especially here in Pennsylvania. It's where our perennial crop of potholes gets <laughs> repaired and then starts all over again in about two months. It's always construction season in Oklahoma. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, class has been getting going. Uh, it's been, there's abstracts due soon, more abstracts, right? Uh, right. APG abstracts, I think, are due the second week of September, which is crazy because the meeting isn't until June 19th. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I registered for housing at AGU this week. That meeting is in mid-December. That's true. And I was unable to get guaranteed housing for two of the nights I wanted to reserve already. Oh, well, you know, San Francisco's always a cluster. That's a massive meeting. Um, I'm guessing with oil prices that APG in Calgary will not be well attended this year. Well, next year. Yeah. <laughs> so probably not have a hard time finding housing up there. But um, So get those in if you're thinking about going to APG. Um, two weeks. Yeah, and you're going to GSA, and we actually have abstracts about podcasting into GSA and AGU, right? We sure do. Um, hopefully, I don't know when the acceptance for those is going to come out, but hopefully ours gets accepted, and we'll be there um, trying to get more listeners for the show and just talk about how basically easy it is to do a podcast, although recording the show today was slightly vexing. <laughs> Yes, uh, you upgraded to Windows 10 and found out that it's not working so well. Yeah, well, the Windows 10 is great. It's um, the drivers that support the microphones that we use. So my Rode Podcaster is not supported with Windows 10. Um, I got on some message boards, and there's a lot of people who are having this problem. So I was very proud of myself. I was on time calling you. We we're going to get this show recorded. And then that happened. And then it turns out my snowball mic isn't supported <laughs> by Windows 10 either. So I know I'm going to be spending tomorrow trying to figure out how to go back to Windows 8, which were words I thought I'd never say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, if anybody out there has upgraded, I know one of our listeners uh, has upgraded to Windows 10 and likes it. But as far as I know, doesn't actually do a lot of media production so if anybody has found anything that works or doesn't on windows 10 uh let shannon know <laughs> yes please let me know um yeah <laughs> <laughs> well before we uh before we roll into today's topic we actually have some listener feedback yay <laughs> from the other yes. listener right not from our parents 
is not from our parents, from our, our <laughs> other listener. And this, I, I was really happy to get this. And I'm really sorry that it took last week's show ended up, you know, we stretched it out over two weeks because the recording just went on and on. Uh, <laughs> so this has been sitting in the inbox for a little while. But listener Angie sent in some absolutely gorgeous pictures from her, I'm going to say office with air quotes around it. Uh, these are amazing pictures. She's a ski patrol uh, what officer, I guess. I don't ski, know. What, ski what patroller. I think is what yes, they called themselves. Yes, ski, ski patroller. <laughs> and uh, she said she's got a BS in geology, uh, but because of the addiction to skiing doesn't work in geology. <laughs> I know a lot of those people. <laughs> and she said ski patrol is really interesting because sometimes you have to do first aid, immediately followed by you know avalanche control, and actually suggested some fun papers that we're going to use on avalanches in snow science. Uh, exactly. There's actually quite a lot of everyone knows you know snow basically has a stratigraphy and the layers of that stratigraphy and how it freezes and refreezes vastly affects how the snow is going to move and so it could be kind of a catastrophic sedimentation situation if you get an avalanche and didn't <laughs> expect it um so we're super excited about angie's paper it was a great paper and i'm sure we've got some i've already got some follow-up papers about snow science because i also love to ski so Really excited about that. And the pictures from her office, amazing. Yeah, so we'll have a link to those posted in the show notes. Uh, or if you follow us on Twitter, you've probably already seen them. Yep. Uh, definitely go check it out. Yes. <laughs> so thanks, Angie, for your feedback. And if anyone else has feedback, do send it to us. We'll tell you how at the end of the show, like always. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, she sent all these really nice field pictures in. And that actually kind of led me to today's topic. Which is a topic near and dear to my heart. But that you thought would be boring when I suggested it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Because I didn't think anyone else would want to hear about Brunton compasses. But, you know, our listeners surprise us. So um, maybe the five of them will really enjoy the history of the Brunton, which is what we're going to talk about. Yes. And so the Brunton, for anybody that's not familiar with it, is... A really expensive Rolls-Royce compass, basically. <laughs> and the one that we all use is called the Pocket Transit. Yes. Um, this Pocket Transit has actually just had an upgrade. I don't know exactly know when this happened, but, you know, these compasses are, they come in plastic now or metal, uh, obviously non-magnetic metal. And like John said, they're really expensive. So they're about the size of a deck of cards, uh, a little bit thicker than that. But mine was upwards of $500. Yeah, mine was too. And it's an awful lot for something that uh, you throw in your backpack or clip to your waist and it's <laughs> tiny. Or watch fall down the side of an outcrop because you lost your grip on it. Um, and it's super scary. But yeah. yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, they come in a wide range of styles. You could get some cheaper ones, but we'll talk about that. Um, the different types that you can get but these compasses are the geology tool you can't go anywhere without it because it's how you take strikes and dips yeah and we'll talk about what strike and dip is in just a second if you're not familiar with it uh, but basically what these compasses are is they're a standard compass that tells you where north is 
hence the name compass. But they also <laughs> have a clinometer in them, which tells you how far the compass body is from horizontal when you set it up on its side. So it lets you measure the angle of, say, a hillside or a piece of rock or whatever you have it setting on at that particular time. Exactly. And it performs the other, it's not just specific to geology, because it performs the other uh, useful things that compasses do. So you can cite bearings uh, to objects, or just like John said, the angle from the horizontal, because it's got a sight and a mirror, just like most other compasses do. And the mirror can also be used as signaling, so it's kind of a safety device. Yeah, and I mean, the mirrors always get cracked if you've had it in the field always. for any period of time, but it still works. Yes. And, you know, using it as a site, you can do all kinds of interesting things. In fact, this is a problem that uh, I would give to intergeophysics students of way back in the Middle Ages, somebody figuring out the height of mountains by citing the angle to the top of the mountain, taking a known number of paces towards the mountain and citing the angle again, and then doing a bunch of trig. So you can do all kinds of little tricks like that in the field to approximate things. It's pretty handy. And it's got some trig tables on it as well. Uh, it does. So on the back of it, it has these trig tables. Um, we did in my intro to field methods class, that was our first exercise was that the students were sent out um, at OU. We have a big north we call it the north oval and so it's a big grassy area that has random and perfect for me the random monuments all are different <laughs> types of rocks <laughs> and so they had to do orienteering they had to sight and there's a couple different ways that you can sight with a brunton compass and one is you can hold it straight out in front of you at eye level or you can hold it at your waist and use the mirror and so they had to learn both of those uh techniques when they were appropriate and how to do that trigonometry of using their paces and the angles to things to figure out heights of objects and also to figure out, you know, the length that they were walking. Yeah. And, you know, another thing about these compasses that a lot of compasses that you buy just in the outdoor store for 15 bucks don't have is you can set the magnetic declination. Yes. Um, which is super important when you're recording strikes and dips because you don't know, especially if you go to a new area and you look in your field book and you don't exactly remember where you're at if you don't take adequate notes. But if you know I had that um, declination correction set, you don't have to worry about doing any math. It's already set for you or you set it yourself. It's great. Yeah, and... You know, it's small, a lot of places, but you think about it, 10 degrees when you're talking about geologic features is a pretty big change. And uh, that's not an uncommon declination setting for parts of the U.S. Uh, no, it's not. Um, I mean, we could you could get up towards to 20 degrees in the northwest. And actually, if you're talking about paleomagnetism, you know, each degree that you are off in your reading is basically you know, two degrees of latitude when you're talking about like paleo reconstructions. I mean, that's just sort of a rough estimate, but that can add up really fast because five degrees off on your declination, you're 10 degrees off on a paleo latitude reconstruction, which is unacceptable error. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there are some people, uh, I've done this in the past, that I forget to look up what the magnet declination is where I'm going. So I set it to zero and then I post correct all of my data. Uh, but where you really get in trouble is if you have it set for when you were in the American Southwest and then you come to the East Coast and <laughs> use it here without changing the setting. Then you're off by upwards of 20 degrees. Was that personal experience or? Uh, possibly. <laughs> Person unnamed. Gotcha. Um. 
Yes. <laughs> exactly right. Um, but the, the main thing that we use Bruns for is for strike and dip. I mean, that's what every geologist learns in their structure classes, and they promptly forget by the next semester when they take intro to field. <laughs> <laughs> um, but strike and dip are the two measures of a rock, right? So they define the orientation of a plane, which in this case is the face of the rock, in three-dimensional space using this agreed-upon convention that actually isn't very agreed-upon. <laughs> yeah, and so when I was putting the shows together, I put agreed-upon handedness convention, right-handedness convention specifically, uh, but we can argue about that. <laughs> exactly. First, let's define strike and dip, though, just for anyone that's listening that isn't familiar with this. So... Right, so if you walked up to a piece of rock, and it's not horizontal, which most aren't, it's tilted in some orientation, and you were to pour some water on it, the water would run in the dip direction. And the dip is simply how steeply the rock is dipping from horizontal in that specific dip direction. Exactly. So a horizontal rock is going to have a dip of zero, and a vertical rock would have a dip of 90 degrees. So dip is pretty... Oh, well, you, you can have rocks that also have dips over 90 degrees that are called overturned, but we won't talk about those for <laughs> no, simplicity. No, uh, that's, that's, yes, exactly. So that's the way you use your brunt for a different, a different way, and we'll, we'll forget about that. But that's how dip works, and so that's pretty straightforward measurement. Strike is a little bit different. The easy way to think of strike is that it is 90 degrees from dip, but the actual definition of strike is the intersection of a horizontal plane with a bedding surface. So if you imagine you've got this rock and it's dipping 45 degrees, if you were to intersect that 45 degree face with say a piece of paper, the line that that paper makes as it intersects the rock is the strike direction. By definition, that's always 90 degrees from dip. Right. But where the handedness comes in is which 90 degrees. Exactly. So. so if you have a rock that's striking, say for simplicity, northeast, southwest, and it's dipping, oh, let's say it's dipping off towards the east, roughly. Okay. Okay. If you use the right-hand rule, then you would report the strike as northeast because you hold your right hand out, you dip your forefingers in the direction of the dip, and your thumb points in the direction of strike. But that's not how I would do it because I use the European right-hand rule where my fingers So, are... So do, your, do Europeans have their thumbs on the other side or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's how it works. Um, yeah. Well, we don't do um, we speaking because I'm European. No, um, <laughs> we don't do fingers in the direction of dip. We do fingers in the direction of strike, and so it winds up and thumb in the direction of dip. So what John was saying, then my strike would be recorded as a southwesterly direction. Yeah, and I will say I've never understood that rule because it goes against everything in physics. <laughs> in terms of the right-hand rule. Yes, I know. And in PMAG, we use the left-hand rule, but I won't even bring that up here. <laughs> yeah, and so then that's the different handedness rules and different versions of the handedness rules. But then you can report this in a different way, too. Uh, kind of the standard here is strike and dip angle. So you would say the rock is striking, oh... 45 east of north 
and dipping 30 degrees, let's say. Correct. Right. Now, you can also report dip and dip direction. Right. So you report the dip angle and then the angle at which the water would run down the rock. And you infer the strike from that based on the handedness. Right. But a way to get away from this, whether you use American right-hand rule or European right-hand rule, is that you always record that dip direction because then it takes away any sort of question about who the drafter of the map. Maybe you're not with them and you've got this thing that says 45, 45. 45 what? Did they use American right-hand rule? Did they use European (laughs) right-hand rule? But if it says it's striking 45 degrees and it's dipping 45 degrees to the say southeast then you know for sure so i make my students always write down dip direction there's no reason not to and it takes away any of this handedness business that we could get into fights about that you can tell that john and i have gotten into fights about (laughs) (laughs) well and if you're making a map in the field just you don't have to get your protractor out, draw the angle precisely, but sketch what the strike and dip marker should look like on your map. You'll thank yourself later because yeah. when you're heat fatigued, you do weird things. <laughs> that That is true. Um, we could probably have a whole mapping show because there are different rules of thought on that. Um, you can also just write points down and then write your strike and dip in the book, um, which is how a lot of people do it. So I feel like it's however your head works best to do it, but yeah. it is... You're right. It's easiest to actually just sketch that strike and dip direction. And then you've got your dip direction marker on the right side of your strike line, and you can just move on. But we can talk about good mapping practices later. Oh, yeah. And because we don't want this to turn into another two parter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, azimuth and quadrant are two different varieties that you can get your compass in. And we have had vicious field fights about this we've had vicious google docs fights about this it's true shannon yelled in the google doc uh, about this so azimuth is exactly what you would think the compass has markings of azimuth from zero to 360 degrees so why don't you explain quadrants and try to convince us that that's the right way to do things Okay, so azimuth, exactly what it sounds like. Now quadrant, exactly what it sounds like as well. So think of a compass face, and it is marked off in 0 to 90 degree increments four times. So you have the northeast quadrant with north being 0 and east being 90. And then you have the southeast quadrant with east being 90, south being 0. Over and over and over again, right? So you do this for the four quadrants. And instead of saying your strike is 100 degrees, say with an easterly dip, you say it is striking 80 degrees east of south. Which is absolutely ludicrous. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of think it is more intuitive, actually to use a quadrant system. I don't know why, and I don't use a quadrant system because I use my compass when we're doing PMAG and our computer programs don't accept quadrant system inputs. So I have an azimuth, Um, but I don't mind the quadrant. And actually I have a lot of students in the field say they don't mind it either, either. I think it's more visual. So when you say I'm 
10 degrees west of north, I immediately visualize that. I do it better than I would when someone says it's striking 350. Well, that one's kind of an easy one, but I feel like that's yeah. another <laughs> that's another step in thinking. And, you know, 20 degrees east of north, that's immediately makes sense to me. But you're right. It has probably started holy wars. <laughs> We it, could it, fight it for definitely th- has. <laughs> we could fight for three shows about this. Um, but I am always surprised because we have our students don't get Bruntons. They get cheap knockoffs. <laughs> um, and half of them are Quadrant and half are Azimuth. And so there's always fights. But um, this last year, I was surprised at how many people actually requested a Quadrant Compass because they felt that they understood the Quadrant method a little bit better. Yeah, and I don't know. To me, it's just zero to three hundred and sixty is something that is easy to deal with mathematically, and it doesn't take that long to get your brain trained to think. Okay, two thirty degrees. Boom! I know what that looks like. In a couple days of using the compass in the field, you can you can get there, and it's just so much more convenient to have actual headings, actual bearings. Uh, to put in because when I was doing a field mapping project a few years ago, uh, well, before I came up to Penn State, actually, I ended up, I had a partner that did everything in quadrant and then I was using a computer program to plot strike and dip markers on a map. And I actually had to write a piece of software that would interpret plain language (laughs) and convert the quadrant readings to actual bearings that then the plotting program could understand. Oh, well, uh, good- which all could have been prevented by using, you know, real numbers. Ah! But you are dealing with geologists who don't use real computers. So, you know, it's really a moot point. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, we will respectfully agree to disagree on this. I do. I will say I use an azimuth because of a computer program. So I understand. But were I simply using my compass for orienteering? I like quadrant better. Well, I guess that's why they make both, right? Exactly. And they still do make both. So that does say something about somebody in the public's need to use a quadrant compass. But they're probably... Well, I mean, they still make rulers with inches, too. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> uh, yes, I see your note in the Google Doc. Let's be scientists here, people, and use our math skills. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Um, another thing about compasses, um, when you look at them, and it really confuses people, is that if you're looking at the face of a Brunton compass, the direction that is east has a W, and the direction that's west has an E. <laughs> yes, and anytime you hand somebody a compass, they instantly freak out and say, did you get a cheap knockoff? Uh, exactly. Um, I've had students come up and try to return them because they're broken (laughs) (laughs) Um, or they're misprinted or something like that. But it's real. It's a real simple fix. If someone is confused about this, you have them stand facing north. Okay. So your compass is on zero, no matter what type of compass you have. (laughs) Right. And, And you rotate. This is sort of a relic of the quadrant system. Basically, you rotate your body towards the east now your compass needle is going to appear to go left 
So when you read your quadrant, now you're reading, say, 20 degrees north, and you see that the E is in that quadrant, so you're 20 degrees north of east is your bearing. Right. That's why they're backwards. Yes, so, and it's another reason that quadranting is <laughs> mind-blowing to me. But <laughs> it does freak people out, so don't worry when you see it. Don't think that your Brunton was horribly mismanufactured. <laughs> exactly. That's the easiest way to show people because as soon as that's why I wanted to bring it up, I know it's sort of a confusing thing, but if anyone ever has to explain a compass, they're going to get to someone that's never used one. They're going to get that question. You have them do that little exercise and instantly the person's like, oh. Yeah. And so these things have been around for a long time. So yes. actually we should dig in a little bit into the history because... They're pretty neat, and it turns out, as you would expect, they were invented by somebody named Brunton, David W. Brunton, in fact. Uh, and this was a long time ago. He he died in 1927, but patented, uh, at least the first patent that the Brunton Compass falls under, in 1894. That was earlier than I expected it. I guess I've never, I've never had a need to look at the history, so um, yeah, that was a long time ago. And as you expect, he was doing something outside right so he was a canadian mining engineer that you say you say here that he was tired of carrying all his heavy survey equipment <laughs> yes and anybody especially geophysicists that carry lots of heavy <laughs> equipment around in the field know that anything that makes the equipment lighter smaller or more rugged is something that you want really bad yeah those car batteries are pretty heavy that is true <laughs> So imagine if you had to carry a full transit and tripod and all of this around. Exactly. That would get really old, especially in some of the terrain that we've worked in. And think of all the time that it saves, too. Well, that the, the compass that he invented saves because having to reset up all that survey equipment every time you want to, you know, take a bearing, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And so he designed this thing, patented it, said, this is great. Uh, hired a company in Denver that was called William Ainsworth and Sons, who later incorporated to make them. And before you know it, they started selling uh, more than anybody had thought. And I've got a link in the show notes to a photo of an early Brunton, which surprisingly looks pretty much like my Brunton. Yes, it does. I was really surprised when I looked at that too. It, the Bruntons still are the exact same shape. And, you know, I have an aluminum bodied, bodied Brunton and it looks just like that one. Yep, it's the hinge awesome. is the exact same design that yep. nobody knows how to open the first time you hand it to them. Oh, or the 15th yep. time. Yep, exactly. Yep. Um, <laughs> yep, you got to memorize that. Um, it was really neat talking about an old Brunton like that. Um, the professor that I teach field camp with said that um, one of the outside students that came to our field camp once brought their grandpa's Brunton, and it was brass. And so she had this like wow. antique brass Brunton out there. And he said, no, 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 you have to put that down. You cannot use that. Number one, it's ridiculously heavy. And number two, that is worth a lot of money. <laughs> Here, take yeah, this that should be cheap in a museum. knockoff. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> take this cheap knockoff that you can break and we'll do that instead. But um, that that's really cool. I would like to see one of those. Oh, yeah. Well, and then so if you fast forward to the mid-1960s, Ainsworth was still doing these, uh, but that's kind of the time where everybody was buying everybody and rebranding everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so it ended up that a bunch of businessmen that were in Wyoming bought the idea, bought the, the patents, 
and started the Brunton Company in Riverton, Wyoming in 1972. And Brunton is still out of Riverton, right? They are, but they have since been bought twice. Uh, they're now subsidiaries. So in the mid-90s, they were bought by Silva of Sweden, and they sold different variants of the Compass. Uh, basically, the Silva-branded ones did everything the Bruntons do, but a little bit different. Right, and I and know that the military uses Silva Compasses because I have um, one of my graduate students is ex-military, and he talks that he was a a gunner and so he did artillery and so they had to do a lot of bearings um and angles and they use little silver compasses but it does do everything that brunton does just like john said but it's not as fluid as a brunton is for the needs of a geologist which is why we always say brunton's synonymous with compasses because silvas don't quite work for our purposes as easy right and i i know some people like using silvas for cave mapping and some things like that, uh, mm. as opposed to Brunton's. But mm. I've, I, I've haven't ever seen anybody use a Silva in the field. Uh, uh, but then, then in two thousand six, uh, Silva got bought by Fiskers, which is Finnish. <laughs> and so I had to look this up just to make sure before I reveal myself as a super <laughs> closet crafter. <laughs> um, but it is it's Fiskers, the scissors company, or if you scrapbook like I do. Fiskers makes all kinds of cool cutting implements for paper and it's the same company and I had no idea that they also owned a compass company yeah and you know Brunton for as many Brunton compasses as there are in the world and I couldn't find a good number on that in the mid 2000s they had about 40 people working for them as of three years ago that number was 68 people and they had planned to double it in the, the near future. But that was the most recent number I could find. So my guess is that we're still looking at a company of 100 people or under that produces all of the standard geology compasses. I was really shocked by that. Um, I'm really surprised because, yes, like every geologist worth their basalt actually owned, well, <laughs> that was a bad pun. <laughs> Since if you're an igneous geologist, you don't own a Brunton compass, probably. <laughs> but um, right. yeah, worth worth their halite owns a Brunton compass. I mean, that's crazy. Only 68 employees. I was really shocked by those numbers. Yes, and I mean, I guess you think about it though. All you have to do is manufacture the parts, which are probably done different offsite machine shops. Uh, and then assemble, and I don't know how many they sell per year, but I could, I could see how that many people could keep up with it, especially if you have uh, a large company that owns you that's supporting you in terms of bookkeeping and all that. Yeah, that's probably true. And the $500 price tag, really, probably. <laughs> a lot of students don't buy their own compasses because they know they're going to go into the oil industry where they're probably never going to need one, and that's a lot of money for a piece of equipment as small as that is but it's worth it if it's something that you're going to use you know for the rest of your career obviously yeah and i mean that leads to some of the issues of the big one that i thought of was well some people buy knockoff compasses because they're everywhere and they're cheaper than bruntons and they're cheaper than bruntons because they're not nearly as good 
Uh, that's true. There are some ways I think that I haven't, I haven't taught long enough to know the difference in the manufacture of the Bruns through the years, but I have talked to some older geologists who have said that the Bruns have sort of changed the way that they balance the needles. And so they tend to break more often and it's nothing that you can fix. So I don't know when that change and how they constructed them was made. But I know that's been a problem that a lot of people haven't been super happy about. But you're right. I mean, the cheap knockoffs are there. Are cheap knockoffs for a reason. We also buy a lot of those because we have a lot of clumsy students at our field camps. <laughs> and we can't afford to replace $500 Bruntons. But a $50 knockoff, you know, you're not producing super quality data with that. But... You're also just there to learn the, learn how to do it, so it's not that big of a travesty. Right, and I'm actually looking up right now uh, Brunton Pocket Transits. You can get some on eBay that are genuine, so I'm actually curious if you could find an antique one oh. that's not old enough that you wouldn't want to take it in the field. But you know, there are a few that look like they're in the $300 range that might be old enough they wouldn't have this issue. Okay. Well, I've I've got a brand new one, and um, it it hasn't had any problems, and I'm a pretty klutzy person, so it's worked for me. <laughs> I think yours has still held up pretty well, too, hasn't it? Yeah, mine's held up really well. I've probably had it since, I don't know, 2010 or so, so not all that long. Uh, but I actually use a surprising amount, though it's a lot of times going outside and trying to point antennas at satellites, but that's another <laughs> show. Indeed. Uh, and one fun thing that you don't think about a lot, because almost all of us, and I can guarantee, I think, that most people listening to this show are at mid-latitudes, where the magnetic inclination is not incredibly high. The Earth's magnetic field vector is parallel or subparallel mm -hmm. to the Earth's surface, where right. you are most likely. Um, if you go to the magnetic pole, it is dipping at 90 degrees, right? The magnetic field vector points straight into the ground, so exactly. north is kind of meaningless. Uh, but the people that go to Antarctica, in addition to having to deal with magnetic declination settings that are in excess of 90 degrees, uh, because the geographic and magnetic mm -hmm. poles are so far apart, also have to deal with the magnetic dip angle is so steep that when you pull your Brunton out, when you get there and open it, the yeah. needle will be hitting the glass and not rotate. Exactly. So <laughs> you've got to do some things to avoid this. And you can buy special compasses that are just for, you know, these high latitude that gives you a little bit more room to let the needle swing. It's mounted in a different area so you can take meaningful measurements. Or you can do the way that I know is done a lot, at least with the U.S. Antarctic program. Uh, which is where they open up the compass. Luckily, they're pretty easy to service and take a little piece of magnet wire or whatever kind of wire you can find around camp and wrap it around one end of the needle to balance it. Yep, exactly. And so that's a cheaper fix, I'm guessing, than owning two compasses. <laughs> it's a cheaper fix. And then when you come back, you have to take it off. And hopefully in there, you don't break your $500 compass. But like I said, uh -huh. they're pretty rugged. And you remember to take it off. But <laughs> well, it'll remind you if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Not like the declination. There should be a, some kind of electronic warning on that. But Did you just say you wanted electronics and field equipment? 
Look, I didn't want to put it down, but yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have I've really long thought that we need the sensors are good enough now. You need a box that you can set on the outcrop, press a button, and it knows where you are from GPS. So it takes the position very accurately of your strike and dip measurement, can take the strike and dip from being set in any orientation. Uh, on the rock surface and then logs it to an app yeah that's tried to exist but uh they got a lot of problems with the strike um i will say a lot of the uh, apps for this are excellent at dip they're quite good but uh yeah we haven't got the strike thing situated on those apps yet yeah yeah it's uh it's a great project if somebody needs an undergraduate project compare Brunton's and different striking dip apps and figure out why they're not so great. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we took them out in the field uh, a couple of times just to sort of do that just for funsies. And I was really surprised. I mean, the dip angle was within a couple of degrees of every dip that I took. So that was, that gave me hope that maybe that is coming soon, which will be sad because students will just do that instead of actually learning how to take strike and dips. But once their batteries run out, they'll figure out they need to know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, before this one turns into a really long show. <laughs> it's okay. People I think like we to should... listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should probably go to a Fun Paper Friday. And you picked this one out. It's a gem. I'm super excited about this one. Um, there are so many great things about this paper. <clears throat> which was in the Infectious Disease Modeling Research Progress. And the title is When Zombies Attack, Mathematical Modeling of an Outbreak of Zombie Infection. Yeah, and this <laughs> this is exactly what it was sounded like. But it, it has some real-world implications because modeling the spread of infectious diseases is something that's really important. I mean, we just had the Ebola outbreak not that long ago. Uh, so learning how to model this is a very important thing. And this is kind of a fun fictional disease that has some unconventional spreading mechanisms that can push the limits of our mathematical modeling, right? Exactly. I, I feel like this is one of those examples where people eschew scientific research that gets funded because you're like, seriously, zombies attack? But there are a lot of great reasons why you would want to do this, which we'll talk about later. But first, I want to say that the first sentence of the introduction is the best thing I've ever read in scientific literature. And it goes thusly. A zombie is a reanimated human corpse that feeds on living human flesh with a reference. <laughs> There's a reference for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the reference is this book. <laughs> it's the Zombie Survival Guide, yes. Complete Protection from the Living Dead by Three Rivers Press. <laughs> uh, this is the most fun paper. And there's a bunch of math in here. And it didn't even matter because they go into the etymology <laughs> of the word zombie. Um, and they have to, because, I mean, they're really modeling this outbreak. So they have to go into, you know, what type of zombies do they use? Do they use, like, pop culture zombies? Do they use zombies from, like, the original of zombies, which came from uh, voodoo traditions? Do they use that kind of zombie, which would behave differently? And therefore, you would have to model infection rates differently. Um, but they talk about that zombies appear in several, several cultures, and obviously the pop culture where they originally appeared was the movie Night of the Living Dead from the 60s. 
And they say that this is sort of the zombie that they, the shuffling mass that's cannibalistic. And once it bites a human, then the human will get infected and become a zombie. So that's the zombie that they chose to model their stuff after. Because Right, and... <laughs> Sorry. Like any good mathematician, you know, they very carefully define their conditions, the different parameters, birth rates, infection rates, all of this. And they're very specific. To destroy the zombie, you have to remove the head and or destroy the brain. Exactly. Parameter alpha. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Um, <laughs> uh, we talk about humans resurrecting and becoming z- zombies, which is its own parameter. Uh, zombie transmission via an encounter with a zombie. Parameter beta. Um, but so they make a basic model where people are susceptible or they're a zombie or they become removed. And so removed is obviously people's, uh, resurrected from the newly deceased is the removed group. Susceptibles are those who have lost in quotation marks an encounter with a zombie. And so (laughs) they define these conditions and run this model and basically say, um, that it's not... They've got a whole bunch of ordinary ordinary differential equations, and they assume a short time scale. So that's important um, throughout this entire paper that the outbreak happens over a very short time, which is also how you would want to model infectious disease outbreaks, right? So when T is short, either um, the susceptibles equal zero, which means zombies have won, and that is the doomsday equilibrium. Or zombies equal zero and we win. And so the first model, um, the disease-free equilibrium when zombies equal zero is not stable. And so, again, another great gem from this paper. Human zombie coexistence is impossible. (laughs) Yes. Um, And like any mathematician, they go on to change all the variables, right? So now we don't have just this easy model with some Jacobian matrices that they saw, but we've put in some new parameters. Right. So you have to have, you know, latent infection. So maybe if you're bit, you don't immediately become a zombie. There's a dead period where you're becoming a zombie. Uh, So that changes the dynamics a little bit, but not a ton. (laughs) No, the wrap up of that model is Thus, coexistence between humans and zombie infection is, again, not possible. (laughs) Yes. Um, So, and then we move into uh, another um, model where you can quarantine people, which, again, doesn't work. And they point out that the kind of mass quarantines with a short amount of time between infection probably isn't something that we could do anyway. So the model, like, logistically, so the models kind of doesn't matter. Um... So the result of that is that the effect of quarantine is to slightly delay the time to eradication of humans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the really interesting one was if we came up with a treatment uh, for zombieism, they say. Right. If you could go back to being a human with the condition that once you're back to being a human, you're not immune. You could become a zombie again. Right. So this is actually quite a, a complex model of the behavior of (laughs) the zombie virus, I guess you want to say. But the coolest part about this is that (laughs) um, they finally come up um, with this coexistence equilibrium that is stable. 
And the stability actually is there are not very many humans and still a lot of zombies. But this is the only um, situation that they came up with where human zombie existence is stable. And I loved it because this is exactly what happens in Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> right? Yes. His, his best friend becomes a zombie and then they live in <laughs> in peaceful coexistence with these zombies that they wind up putting to work at like supermarkets and stuff. So mathematically, that's the only way thing that can happen. Well, and then though they talked about the what I'm going to call the zombie land scenario. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> of uh, impulsive eradication. Right, and so this is like the answer, answer, right? Yeah. So this is where you know we we take our star of zombie land, who says, "I'm good at killing zombies," <laughs> and we have these massive, very effective attacks and kill lots of zombies. And we can actually win that way, but you have to be able to muster the resources, and that would be very tough. Right, exactly, because they say that, that short. this is where this short time period, um, the infection is short time period, but the problem is you have to hit them very quickly, and your attacks have to gain in magnitude as time goes on. So I don't know if we could actually do that, but that's the only one where z equals zero actually happened yeah and and that leads to their sentence in the discussion that says thus if zombies arrive we must act quickly and decisively to eradicate them before they eradicate us (laughs) exactly um the discussion talks about uh this is some great things um so the difference here between models like this zombie thing versus other models of infectious diseases they point out is that the dead can come back to life. <laughs> um, right. And they say, clearly this is an unlikely scenario if taken literally, but you could also, you know, not, not just coming back to life, but if you have a virus that mutates rapidly and so therefore could reinfect people, this sort of modeling could help um, in those kinds of situations. Or as they say, like real life applications where like allegiance to political parties changes or diseases that have a dormant, infection and can sit around for a while um well yeah and it strikes me as hilarious that allegiance to political parties is comparable <laughs> to the spread of infectious disease and zombieism <laughs> oh man but it really is <laughs> and i thought you would really like this paper john because they give you the matlab code so you can run it yourself yeah it would have been a little bit better if it was python code but you know it's open source code uh even if it's not an open source platform so i'm going to be pretty happy with that exactly. and <laughs> the writing was really great uh, it was like, i thought it it's kind of long and like i said there's a lot of math i found this to be the most enjoyable paper i've read in years <laughs> yeah and you know this reminded me actually if you're curious about these kind of problems and whether you can get stable solutions and equilibria uh, there's a really good book by Martin Braun called Differential Equations and Their Applications an Introduction to Applied Mathematics mm-hmm. and this book was suggested to me years ago in a meteorology course and I bought it and it is the clearest book on differential equations and it actually has predator prey problems oh, set up in it wow. and very thoroughly explained that this is reminiscent of this is just a, an extension with a lot more complications than the basic problems set up in the book. Uh, you can pick up used copies for really cheap. The most recent edition, brand new on Amazon's less than 50 bucks. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I'll be looking into that. I certainly didn't enjoy calculus, but I enjoyed differential equations much more so. Maybe that's why I like this paper so much, but 
It was a pretty neat paper. I highly suggest reading it when you're taking a break from, you know, your real research. <laughs> right. And maybe figure out how zombieism applies to uh, your geology problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Well, that's your fun paper Friday for this week. And, you know, it's the end of summer. Uh, school year is starting again. So it's the end of summer shorts, which... <laughs> had been getting long anyway uh, i was gonna say i think this is definitely our pants edition of the summer shorts <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah th- these are these are the summer capris but <laughs> you know we really enjoyed doing it and we're happy that a lot of our listeners uh, now are getting back into swing of things with the school year and we're seeing a lot of people go back and kind of catch up on what they missed over the summer so we hope you're enjoying it, and we want you to send us feedback for fun paper suggestions or pictures of what you did uh, over the summer in the field or just anything that you'd like to let us know about or anything that we messed up. Shannon, how can they do that? Well, keep emailing us, uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can always post comments, audio, or otherwise on our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, we're fairly active on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. Right, and if you've posted a comment on the website and you haven't seen it appear, please email us. Uh, we unfortunately got spam attacked Aww. about a week ago with thousands and thousands of comments trying to sell cheap NFL jerseys and Air Jordans. <laughs> so I apologize if your comment uh, got deleted <laughs> or if you commented during about... that spam clear. <laughs> or if you commented about selling us your cheap jerseys, we deleted it. <laughs> Yes. Well, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.